If you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. That still should be page 1 if you're using one of the pew Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. And uh, you can also find it on the inside cover of the bulletin. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We looked at all of chapter 1 as well as a few verses of chapter 2 last week. This week, let's <clears throat> we'll be looking at just a, a bit of a shorter portion. But without further ado, let's hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And sends the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we, can, as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Meaningless, vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Those, those words are in the Bible, written probably by one of Israel's great kings. Does that mean that life is meaningless and pointless? Should we just live for the now? Because you know, you only live once, YOLO. And, and FOMO, fear of missing out as a thing, you know, so you have to try different things, be true to yourself, follow your heart, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's what the Bible says, right? Some of those words appear in the Bible, but why does Ecclesiastes or 1 Corinthians 15 or Isaiah 22 include some of those things? Isn't Ecclesiastes trying to show us the meaninglessness of life without God specifically, the meaninglessness of life that is lived merely under the sun. Isn't it encouraging us to look beyond the sun, beyond the simple processes that we can observe in this life? Yes, because you see Solomon sampled every pleasure that there was, every bit of human wisdom, and he concluded that this isn't good enough. All this wisdom, all the learning of mankind, it's what Augustine would discover years later. His heart was restless despite sampling all of the world's pleasures until he found his rest in his creator. It's what Bernard of Clairvaux sang about, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. For years, Hollywood is obsessed with the origin stories, the things that supposedly help us see the secrets to a character's motivation and their quirks. Now, on the one hand, our childhood does not determine absolutely our future. People can change. In Christ, people get better. Praise the Lord. But there is wisdom in understanding one's origins. So why would we ignore our origin story? 
Genesis is the book of beginnings. Last week, we looked at the beginning, the creation of the world. This week, we take a very focused look at the beginning of man, the creation of man, our, our origin story. Because God's creation, it includes our bodies, which God calls very good, which have been marred by sin, which can be redeemed in Christ and fully restored in eternity. So four points today. I have borrowed some of these phrases from James Boyce and John Gershner, but here we go. Four points. The first one is this, created by God. Simple to the point. You see it in verse 26. Last week, I made a similar point to emphasize that we have a purpose in life. We're, we're not an accident. But also, if we're created by God, doesn't it mean that he has authority over us, that we're accountable to someone? Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. By the way, those two phrases basically mean the same thing, everyone thinks. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind is meant to rule the earth as God's representative. That is a great honor as we discussed last week, but doesn't it also come with great responsibility? Doesn't great power come with great responsibility? Is that only true for Spider-Man or is it true for all of us? Do you have, do we have a responsibility beyond ourselves? You see, if I said, you have to look out for yourself, your own interests, your own happiness, many would agree. But should we? Our world prizes almost above everything. Autonomy. I have to determine what's best for me. And, and there's some wisdom in that when it comes to things like choosing our house, our car, our per profession. You know, perhaps you know your individual skills and abilities better than someone else does. But even that has limits, right? Politicians can't ultimately choose their jobs. Voters do. Salesmen, artists, <laughs> if no one buys their stuff, then their autonomy is a bit limited, isn't it? If I want to live in a certain house, but somebody already owns it, then they don't have to sell it to me, right? Our culture prizes autonomy, but even our culture realizes there are limits to personal autonomy. The question in life is not whether we're bound by rules and constraints. The question is which constraints are we bound by and who gets to determine them? Those limits, those constraints, those rules. Who gets to determine them? How about our creator? The one who created us has a right to dictate rules, limits, and constraints to us. And we are most free when we live according to his design for us. You think for a moment, fish don't feel free when they leave the ocean, when they break free, when they try to explore new boundaries and things like that. No, they flounder. They suffer until they return to their natural habitat. God created fish, and he created them to be fruitful, verse 22 says. When he was done creating animals, he kept creating. And that leads us to our second point. This one will be a bit longer. Secondly, he created male and female. He created male and female, verse 27. God creates for six straight days. And after he creates, he pronounces <clears throat> the creation good. He does that every time. Day six is different. After he does that, then it says land animals, they're created. Every, every realm at this point has a ruler, seemingly. 
God calls the land animals good, but he keeps creating one more exquisite creation. He creates man in his image, in the image of God. And he creates man with dominion over the rest of creation. He creates man with an inherent difference or diversity. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him male and female, two genders or sexes, not one, only two, not more than two. And yes, you may have noticed I am not distinguishing sex from gender. My goal here is not to be controversial, but to be traditional, to be biblical for thousands of years. There was no difference between those concepts of sex and gender. And yes, I'm also implying that there is a difference between the two genders. Now, no difference in their dignity and value to God. Both are created in God's image, but a difference in physiology, biology, always. A difference in temperament and gifting, it at least is a rule of thumb. One premar premarital counseling guide says it this way, more directly and more often, women support, encourage, and nurture home and children. More directly and more often, men lead, provide for, and protect family. Now, don't miss those words, more directly, more often. Those words confront us if we think there's no difference between men and women, as some would say today. It also confronts us if we believe that women, uh, men and women have, have nothing in common. Do the words male and female mean something? Yes. We can go wrong by making them mean too much. We can go wrong by making them mean not enough. In terms of not enough, erasing all distinctions. That's, that's making them mean not enough. By too much, we can forget those phrases like more directly and more often. To give a specific example, we can be overly rigid about things like gender roles when it comes to household chores and tasks. For example, can husbands cook? Well, I can. If you're at my house, I wouldn't recommend eating anything I didn't grill, except coffee. But husbands certainly can cook. Maybe they can cook better than their wives, and so they, they do most of the cooking in their house. Maybe they're a professional chef, and they like leaving work at work, and so they don't, right? There's different ways this could could, could play out. The point is not to be overly rigid while remembering that general biblical design for the roles. Now, of course, at some point, we have to decide who cooks, who does the dishes. For that, I'd recommend a rule of thumb from that same premarital counseling guide. Who should do what chores? Whoever is more gifted and or more available to do them. By the way, that might also help singles who have roommates in college, my roommate and I usually decided who would take out the trash and other chores like that by playing a game of foosball, a game, or best two out of three, or so on and so on. It was fun. It wasn't all that efficient. <clears throat> the point again, God made us male and female. He made us with a general design, and we are most free when we live according to that design. And when we adopt as well a Christ-like servant heart, asking whether my gifts or simply my availability best enables me to serve in this way right now. 
Now, Lord willing, we'll say more about marriage next week when we see the institution of marriage between one man and one woman. When God creates for Adam, for man, a helper corresponding to his opposite, Genesis 2, 18. First off, don't fixate on the word helper. God is called helper in Scripture numerous times. It's a term of honor. And second, do focus on the last part, a helper corresponding to his opposite. It's often translated a helper fit for him, a helper corresponding to him. The idea is that man, uh, excuse me, that male and female, the, the differences between the two, they complement one another. They round each other out. Again, more on marriage next week. For now, some might be wondering if I'm going to talk about issues of transgenderism. I am with fear and trembling, so prayers are appreciated. Uh, why fear and trembling? Because the odds of offending someone are high, though certainly not my intention. So to dive into this, we're going to build a logical syllogism. You with me? If God created us male and female, and if male and female are genders that correspond to our biological sex, and if there is a difference between male and female, then we will not be truly free. We will not truly flourish, if you prefer that word, unless we live in line with God's design. Now, first off, I said if several times there, but I believe all those conditional statements are true. One reason for that is verse 21, after God creates man, male and female, God says the words very good for the first time. Very good. Man is created, male and female, and God says this is very good. But, but here's why I said if a second ago. Our world is attacking the truth of each of those statements that I said a minute ago, I believe. And some listening today may be influenced by those arguments. Some of our children are still forming opinions on some of these things, and I'm frankly presenting an alternative argument. Even if you doubt what I'm saying, I'm challenging you to assume it's true for the sake of argument. I'm inviting you to try it on for size. See if this doesn't make more sense than the arguments you've heard, the other arguments. Because some of the arguments in our culture, they don't use consistent logic. For example, a satire piece from World Magazine, April 28th of last year, says... Men and women don't have to look a certain way, but if a man becomes a woman, he should definitely pick a woman's name and try not to look masculine anymore. I mean, if there were such a thing as masculinity, because obviously there isn't, but sometimes there is, and then it's completely toxic. Here's the bottom line. Gender is a social construct, period. I know it's complicated, it concludes, but don't worry. The less you think about it, the more it will make sense. It wasn't intended to be a joke. If it is funny, so be it. Does it make sense? The prevailing wisdom of our age, does it make sense? I, I don't think it does. Does the Bible make sense? Even if you're not sure that you agree with it yet, is it possible that God designed us in a certain way? Possible that God's design conflicts with the wisdom of our age? Possible that so much of our unrest, our unhappiness is because we've rebelled against God's design and his wisdom? That we've become wise in our own eyes and we've left behind true wisdom? 
What if the all-wise God created us in a very good way, male and female, and our attempt to improve his design has made it, has made us less good? What if we need to recapture the goodness of God's design? That leads to our third point this morning. We are not simply created male and female. We are also created, thirdly, for glory and honor. Created for glory and honor, verse 28. It's not a repeat from last week. It's more like an expansion of last week. Look with me at verse 28. Excuse me. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave mankind dominion over the creation. That has implications for how we learn at school, how we do our jobs, how we love our kids and change their diapers, how we proclaim his glory throughout the earth. It is a great and fabulous honor to be made in God's image, to be his representative on earth. By an odd coincidence, I'm going to be explaining that more in Sunday school for a different reason, because the image of God has implications for race relations too. But in short, all mankind are created in the image of God. And being made in God's image means that we are supposed to represent God on earth, be in relationship with God, and reflect God's righteousness. Supposed to do those things. That was his creational design but we often struggle to live according to God's design, don't we? We have ever since our first parents sinned. You see, we can't fully understand God's story and our place in it unless we understand the full story, which includes the fall when our first parents blew it for the rest of us. By by comparison, you can't really understand the gravity of Star Wars A New Hope unless you know who Luke Skywalker's father is. Right? And no spoilers, there are young children here who still need to be initiated. But here's why Genesis 3 matters. We're all created in God's image with glory and honor, befitting royalty. Because we're made in our Father's image and He's the King of Kings. But the image of God, it's been marred by sin. We, we aren't focused on a daily basis on having dominion over God's kingdom. We want to expand our own kingdom. We want to make a name for ourselves as they did back at battle. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, even our desires have been disordered. They've been cursed by sin. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. One of the more straightforward passages in Ecclesiastes, for those who know it's interesting composition. Nonetheless, the image of God has been marred by sin, but not destroyed, not destroyed. It needs to be restored, and it can be in Christ Jesus. Now, before I move on, let's make something clear here. See, this point is not only aimed at those who are confused about their gender, those who are struggling with sexual sin. This point is aimed at you, at me, at all of us, All of us individually. See, every sermon you hear, you've heard me say this before, every sermon you hear is first and foremost for you. And every one of us here needs to hear this. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us were made in God's image, but we have marred it. We've destroyed, at least partially, that image through our sin and rebellion. 
And even if we are born again in Christ, we are still not a finished product. I could rattle off verses at this point about how the New Testament shows us that salvation means we are renewed in the image of Christ. I'll give you a few. They're in the bulletin notes, the reflection questions. Romans 8, 29, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Ephesians 4, 24, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I could go on, read them later. First, let me try to illustrate what's going on. You see, our struggle is really a struggle of identity. Who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? You see, the world's answer in in a two-word phrase is expressive individualism. I need to be authentic. I need to be true to my desires. That's how I find freedom. Expressive individualism, personal authenticity, uh, almost a choose-your-adventure path to personal identity. That's not meant to be a joke. Go on a journey. Let your heart lead you. But the Bible has a different model for us because it says our hearts, because of our own sin, are sick. They are deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9. Don't go on a self-guided journey. You are not a mystery for you to solve. You are a masterpiece in need of restoration. This idea comes from John Wyatt. Vaughn Roberts mentions it in his short book, which is titled Transgender. You are not a machine. You are not a mystery to be solved. You are a flawed masterpiece by a master artist in need of restoration. How does an art restorer do his work? Have you ever seen these things where it talks about somebody who's working on a, on a priceless Van Gogh that, you know, the paint didn't age well or some, some Da Vinci piece or something like that. It's been damaged by age and decay. What do they do? Do they say things like, you know, we really should give Mona Lisa blue eyes <laughs> or why don't we try to part her hair on the left to soften her features? No, of course not. It'd be a travesty. It'd be a betraying the intentions of the original artist, right? Their goal is to restore, to understand the artist's intention to restore the original to what it was always meant to be. Now, maybe you're, maybe you are confused about your gender. Maybe you're struggling with sexual sin, or maybe you're struggling with a supposedly more respectable sin like anger or envy or something else. And what all of us need is to see God's original masterpiece in all its glory. We need God to restore what he created for him to restore us because we can't do it. We need him to refashion us in his image. And we will only get there by beholding the Lord, beholding his glory, submitting ourselves to his lordship and letting him have his way with us. Ephesians 4.24 says our goal is by God's grace to put on the new self created after the likeness, there's that word again, of God in true righteousness and holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are, quote, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We've been created for glory and honor. Created in the image of God, an image which has been marred by sin, but not destroyed, an image that can be renewed in Christ, and an image that will be fully renewed in eternity. 
That leads to our final point this morning. Number four, recreated in Christ. Recreated in Christ. You don't see this in Genesis, we admit, right? You only see creation. In, in Genesis 1, you don't even see the fall or the subsequent redemption of the image of God uh, in man. But I would be wrong to only give you the introduction to this story, to not give you the glorious ending. Because even for those of us who know these truths, have experienced these truths, we still haven't tasted or experienced the final chapter, right? We have tasted some of it, though. And that is worth celebrating. For example, if you're a Christian, especially if you've been one for a long time, aren't you glad you were not who you were 25 years ago? Aren't you glad that you're not as flawed, as insecure, as angry, as whatever you were? It's okay to praise God for that. And it's healthy to say, I would still be that bad or worse if not for God's grace restoring me to his original intention and design. But even so, my friends, we are, we're not all the way to our destination yet, are we? Basic storyline of scripture has four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, or recreation, or restoration. But again, we are not fully there on point four. Bible says we are new creations in Christ, but in the words of Hokema. We are genuinely new on this side of heaven, but we are not fully new. Just read Romans 7. Paul knew it well. Paul knew that some of his old sinful motivations were still ingrained deep within. And as much as God might have done in any of our lives, again, he is not finished with us yet. Philippians 1.6, there Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. When is that day of Christ Jesus? Isn't it the day when he comes back and ushers in a new era in history? We aren't fully new, not yet, but we will be. Philippians 3 verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We aren't what we should be, but even if we're in Christ, we are still not what we will be. First John three, verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Or as 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, just as we have borne the flawed image of Adam, our first father, so it says we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This life is not meaningless. We are part of a grand redemption story. And that story has not just an ending, but a good, a glorious ending. Story, does it also have a bad guy? Yes. And sadly, we are that bad guy. We are, we are rebels who have strayed from God's plan and his design and his 
lordship. But even though we've run far away, even though we've rebelled against our maker, he is coming to rescue us. And in Christ, that rescue has already begun. It won't be finished until he restores us to all the beauty, all the glory of his original design. Because though we might be rebels, we are also flawed masterpieces. And the master himself is coming back to rescue us and restore us to all of our original glory and then some. Isn't that good news? No, it's very good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all that you do is good. So often we take your goodness and we distort it with our sin, with our rebellion in various ways. We've talked about some this morning. Whatever our pet sins might be, oh, Father, help us to hate them. Help us to run from them. Help us to put them to death. And if we find that we don't have the power to do it, Father, would you drive us to the cross? Would you help us to know that a broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise. That is where you begin to do your work when we realize that we are helpless, that we are powerless in our own strength to change in the way that we want to change. Father, work in us that which we need. Give us what we need. Even if it's not what we want, give us what we need. Do your good work in us so that we can begin to see the restoration of the masterpiece that you've made. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.